I'm Martin Reeves, Chairman of the BC Henderson Institute, and I'm joined today by Professor Rita McGrath, who is a professor at Columbia Business School, and she's just written a very fascinating book called Seeing Around Corners, How to Spot Inflection Points in Business Before They Happen, which I'm really looking forward to speaking to her about. Uh, welcome, Rita. It's a pleasure to be here. So maybe to kick off, uh, could you tell us what the basic uh, thesis is of your book? So the idea is that a strategic inflection point is some kind of external event that makes the assumptions underlying your business less and less accurate. And it was sparked by the realization that inflection points, although they feel as though they've come upon you very suddenly, have usually been gestating for some time. And that gives you the opportunity because if you can see them early, you can create a competitive advantage by being able to go, you know, where that inflection point is going to take your markets. If you miss them, on the other hand, it can cause your business to erode. So the book is really about how do you see it? How do you decide what to do about it? And then how do you bring the organization with you as you go through this change? So you talk about the need to embrace the future. And you say that that often involves a sense of loss. Um, which companies can be averse to. What are the barriers to this seemingly simple act of looking ahead? Well, I think part of what causes it to be painful in some cases is that a lot of the skills and capabilities and personal affection and uh, all these emotional things that were appropriate under the old regime, you know, as the new regime advances, become less and less um, rewarding and less and less relevant. Um, you talk about taking note of emerging trends. Uh, of course, there are thousands of emerging trends. If you're a company that's attending to the future, how do you know which ones to pay attention to? Well, I think you can't in the really early stages. So what I recommend organizations do is maintain a lively pool of what I call options. So these are small investments and experiments and tests that you're running all the time. Um, and the concept is if, if you're at the edges of the organization, you can do this testing. And then eventually what you'll see is some patterns start to stand out. Some repeat themselves, some become uh, more relevant. And that's when you can begin to think about investing more. But a lot of people really struggle with investing in options because by definition, most options won't be in the money. You know, most options won't be something you want to make a bigger investment in. And a lot of people still think in terms of, you know, if I start something, I've got to finish it to, you know, its conclusion. And that's not true with options. You might, you know, you might experiment with something, conclude that's not a fruitful direction, move on, and that's fine. And companies really struggle with that. So you give a couple of tips on um, this art of focusing on the right things. You say, define your arena. You say, understand consumer frictions. And you say, map uh, backwards to T0. Could you maybe explain a few of those ideas to us? Yes. So I think the first thing that is quite a departure, as you know, from traditional strategy notions is that industry in this world of inflection points is much less useful as a bucket in, within which to capture your strategic thinking than it ever was. Um, and so it used to be we had industries with fairly well-defined boundaries. They didn't shift a whole lot. And you didn't really see you know, competitors leaping gaily across industry boundaries to compete with each other. You know, so you got tech companies now competing with banks. I mean, when did that happen? So instead, what I recommend is you think about your competitive arena where an arena represents a pot of resources that you and potentially various other players are contesting. 
And you've got stakeholders within that arena, each of whom have what uh, the late Clayton Christensen very famously called jobs to be done. And you know, his advice was don't think so much about buying products and services as you do about hiring them to get jobs done in your lives. And when you look at it through that lens, what becomes pretty clear is there's a lot of different ways I can get jobs done in my life. And to make that very concrete, if you look at a company like Netflix, uh, they've gone very public and said, you know, what we want is as much of your disposable time as we can soak up. <laughs> and so the enemy is not other movie companies, although of course it is that, but the enemy is reading a book or taking a walk or drinking a glass of wine or sleeping. <laughs> you know? And so they really set their strategy to, if, if there's time you've got to spend, let's spend it with Netflix. Um, so that's one, one idea. I think uh, the other concept that is, is sort of important in this is the whole notion of, you know, who is the customer really and what are you really doing for them, which an inflection point can cause to change. Yes, I like the idea that um, you spot a friction and don't necessarily require that friction to be resolved because the point is, if it is resolved, then you have a disruption. So your early warning indicator is the, uh, is, is the existence of the friction, if I've understood that correctly. Yeah, yeah, that's one. Um, so the, the time zero idea really says, look, um, if we, and I've got techniques for doing this, but, but simply, if we look at a future scenario or two and say, whether it's good for us or not so good for us, um, what would be a headline, say, from the future that would represent the inflection point having arrived in its full form, right? And then what you can do is work backward and say, well, what should we be looking at today if we wanted to know whether this was becoming more or less likely? Uh, so if I choose my own industry, business schools, you know, as an example, um, a time zero event might be, you know, business school applications are down by 50% from their peak. Right. I mean, that would be pretty dire for a lot of us in the business school business. Well, if you go backward and you say, well, what might anticipate that? It would be things like, you know, business school students aren't getting the salary bump that they used to get from the degree. Instead, they're getting paid more based on what they did before they went back to school than after the school. Uh, you might have, you know, alternative degrees or alternative credentials beginning to be respected as much or more than the MBA. You might have different form factors for the MBA. And what you see, if you really take a look at these, is many of these are already starting to become reality. And so if you're a mid-tier or lower-tier business school, I would want to be thinking very hard about what my strategy needs to be, because it's pretty clear the existing model is starting to get to the end of its competitive life cycle. Um, you talk about a very interesting concept, planning to learn. You say, you can see that it's quite hard to plan precisely under uncertainty. You say that one of the, one of the alternatives is to plan to learn. What, what, what do you mean by that? Well, I think this comes from uh, years of work I've done on planning under uncertainty. Um, and, I'm, and originally I looked at it in an innovation context, but really you can think about it in any context where there's a lot of unknowns. Um, and the idea is that, you know, if you're looking into the future and it's very, very foggy and noisy, to try to sit there and plan out what the next two years are going to look like or 18 months or whatever is, you know, it's kind of an exercise in quantifying fantasy because you really have no knowledge. You're just dealing with a lot of assumptions. So the planning to learn idea is let's articulate what assumptions we're making at the moment. Let's design some kind of next step that is going to teach us something. And then when we get to that next point, let's stop. Let's not just charge on blindly as though we had facts. Let's stop and look at how are our assumptions changing? Have we 
gained any new knowledge and does it really make sense for us to proceed? And the acronym I use to describe that thought process is RACE. So should we redirect? Should we accelerate? Should we just continue or should we exit? And every time you get to one of these critical learning moments, you know, go through that race. Because I think a lot of times in companies, what happens is people take for granted the thing's going to continue when maybe you've learned enough to know it really didn't make sense. You know, a wonderful example of this is uh, Dyson, the entrepreneur, um, had a couple of years ago made a big uh, effort in getting into the electric car business. Um, and back then, you know, Tesla was really the only company that had made a major commitment to electric vehicles. But since then, a lot of the big players have gone in. And worse than that, they've gone in with the express intention of not making a profit on these things. And Dyson said, look, you know, we're a smaller player. I don't have the kind of pockets to support a money losing business indefinitely. And he actually made the decision to disengage from that business, which was very painful. I mean, I'm not saying it was an easy choice, but he had the courage to do that because he said, look, given, given what currently we know about this space, it's, it's gone from being something that's exciting and novel and has a lot of growth potential to being something where it looks like a war of attrition and we're just not going to go there. Yes, I'd just like to, to share a wonderful phrase from the book with, uh, with listeners. You say, don't worry about being right, but about whether it's worth learning in the next step. I, I thought that was a very good way of explaining it. Um, but let's move on to um, not detecting disruptions, but doing something about them. Um, one of the, uh, the major barriers is, is, of course, galvanizing the organization. It may not just be the leaders or the strategy department that is stuck in yesterday's mental model. It may be the entire organization. They're potentially facing massive resistance and sort of mental resistance, you know, how we think about things. What, what can leaders do to galvanize the organization around the possibility of a disruption? Well, I think the first thing you have to create when you're trying to shift the center of gravity of a company, which is essentially what we're talking about, is you need to give them a reason that the status quo can't continue. Um, so, for example, at, at Microsoft, Satya Nadella talked a lot about um, what he calls leading indicators. He said, you know, in a, in a cloud-based world, things like profits and revenue, those are great. It's not that we shouldn't be measuring them, but they're not telling us very much about the future. So he got people focused on what are the things that predict profits and revenue. And in the case of a cloud-based service or a monthly recurring revenue business, it's things like usage, you know, how much usage are people making? And before you can get to usage, customers have to like or even love your product. So what he did with his executive team is he changed their compensation plan. Now that gets people's attention, right? So about half their comp right now is on the traditional measures, revenues, profits, sales, and so forth. And he calls those performance metrics. But the other half is on what he calls power metrics, which are these things about customer love and usage and kind of the leading indicators. So I think one of the most powerful levers an executive has is uh, the ability to change the way people are compensated. Uh, a lot of times, by the way, people are too afraid to do that. So they leave the compensation system the way it was in the past and that almost never works. Um, a second thing that they have control over is literally the agenda. Um, so as a senior leader, your, your behavior, your agenda, the things you're paying attention to are very often things that then echo down the organization because once you've made it clear this is of, in, of interest to you, people get the message. But in contrast, if you don't pay attention to it, if you're not personally involved with it, people get that message as well. So maybe next we can move on to capability. Um, you've already actually anticipated one of my questions, which was about leading indicators. Um, another thing that caught my eye was 
uh, what I call external orientation and what you more poetically call snow melting from the edges, um, getting focused on the edges of the industry or the organization. Could you tell us a little bit about um, snow melting from the edges? Well, this is actually um, a phrase that was inspired by Andy Grove. Um, and, you know, Andy Grove very famously in the 90s wrote a fantastic book called Only the Paranoid Survive. And what he was looking at was an inflection point that actually Intel was in the midst of. So this was this sort of, it's come, it's here, what do we do now? And my work was really to try to go earlier than that and say, before it's upon us, what can we do? So that, that's the first thing. And what he said was, you know, if, if you want, wish to know where spring is making itself felt, you must travel to the periphery because that's where the snow is most exposed. And I thought this notion of inflection points starting at the periphery is a very powerful one. Because if you think about it, who picks this stuff up first? It's the person you know, who's making a delivery who says, well, that's weird. Why did it go this way that time? Or it's the person handling a customer complaint and they're sort of saying, well, we never had that happen before. It's those, those sort of small moments of surprise or things not going as the assumptions would suggest that they are, that that's often where the insight begins, that something new is afoot. Um, I also think there's, there's an important um, element to having multiple sources of information that are able to triangulate, perhaps, to see what's really going on. Um, so a great example of a company that, that kind of got caught by surprise by this was um, Gillette, and the advent of these direct-to-consumer shaving upstarts, so companies like Dollar Shave Club and Harry's, who thought that, that inexpensive imported razors in a completely different business model, you know, direct-to-consumer, mediated by social media with, you know, everybody's now maybe making shaving a communal experience. <laughs> you know, who would have thought that that would be a thing? And yet for a certain kind of person, it's a much more attractive experience than the traditional, you know, you go to a pharmacy and you get them to unlock the razor fortress and then they hand you their blades and that kind of thing. So I think um, it, it's just important to be in places which are not sort of central to where your strategy conventionally might be expressed. So we think about uh, what leaders do in these systems. It seems to me that you're implying a slightly different uh, concept of leadership, uh, one of, you know, artful nudges than uh, sort of top-down control. Uh, against a uh, you know a planned certainty, and um, so you talked about being the glue. Um, what would you say more more generally about when when leaders have detected um, a disruption and they're trying to mobilise the organisation and they've put the right metrics in place? What what else can they do to orchestrate the uh, the, the change to uh, an unknown and perhaps feared feared business model? Well, a couple of things I think are very important. One is to be willing to encourage and listen to what some people call helpful Cassandras, you know. And of course, Cassandra was a figure in Greek mythology who was blessed with the ability to see the future and cursed with the fact that nobody would listen to her. <laughs> and so she was able to see these disasters coming but couldn't really get the people mobilized to do anything about it. Um, and so what makes a helpful Cassandra um, someone you should pay attention to. So I think the first principle is it's not somebody who's running around saying the sky is falling all the time, right? It's, it's, it's someone who's very thoughtful about specifically what is changing. 
It's often someone who's very close to the phenomena. So technical experts or scientists or people on the front lines with customers. And what's interesting is they're the ones that see it, but they are not in the strategy department. They're not making decisions about resource allocation. So how do you go find those people that actually have the data and, and yet often are not in a position to be able to communicate it? And then when they do communicate it, you have to be willing to hear the message. And a lot of senior executives make it pretty clear they're just not interested. So I think there's a whole human engineering part about being willing to hear disconfirming information and uncomfortable news and in fact encouraging that. Now together with that is you have to be prepared for, if you're going to devolve control to some extent, you have to be prepared for mistakes to be made and you have to be willing to let people know you'll support them if the mistakes were in the right place. So a great example of this is um, a few years ago, um, Microsoft figured that hey, you know, a really important aspect of the future is going to be understanding how men and machine communicate, you know? And so how does artificial intelligence affect the way that we communicate with our equipment? And so they, um, they designed and released, unfortunately, into Twitter, this charming little chatbot named Tay. You remember Tay? Yes, I do. And she was and supposed to be- colorful like, language. Uh, sorry? <laughs> And some of her colorful language. <laughs> well, so the thing was, um, what they were trying to learn was, you know, it's, it's this chatbot that's sort of a, I guess she was designed to be like a teenage or, or early 20s young woman. And uh, they put her out and they thought, well, you know, she'll have conversations with the people that live on Twitter and she'll learn. And then, you know, she'll get smarter about how they um, communicate. Well, what happened, unfortunately, is the, 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 the deep, dark sewer side of Twitter sort of found out that if you sent really awful messages at this chatbot, she would repeat them. Right. And so within about 48 hours, this poor little chatbot gets turned into this like homophobic, Nazi, racist, I mean, and worse. You know? And it was terrible embarrassing and it caused headlines all over the place and you know people were like Microsoft what are you thinking and this is the stupidest thing we've ever seen and didn't you know blah 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 but the point was I think which was interesting about it was you know the question is a worthy one right how are men and machines going to communicate in the future and women and machines you know how are people and machines going to interact um, and you know what does an environment like Twitter suggest we should understand about the way human beings can communicate with one another. So what was interesting to me about what Satya Nadella did, now this, so this is a terribly embarrassing, big, you know, a lot of people making fun of Microsoft. But when you think about it, like nobody died, um, you know, it was just embarrassing. It didn't, it didn't destroy company value. It didn't cause their market cap to shrink. It didn't cause a health and safety violation. It was just embarrassing. So in the great scheme of things, it's not such a bad thing. So he basically wrote to the head of this, this project, who's a woman, and said, uh, you know, that didn't work out the way any of us expected, but I think you're directionally in the right direction. You know, don't stop trying. I've got your back. Yeah. And, you know, really simple message about like, and if he'd reacted any other way, right, people would have gotten the message very quickly, like, ooh, you know, if it's got uncertainty in it, don't do it because we'll get punished. And so creating that sense of psychological safety and support for people trying new things, it takes courage on the part of a leader, you know, to go back to the New York Times or whoever and say, well, you know, we, we, we did a sincere and well-intentioned effort that went wrong. That, that takes some courage. So, so bringing it back to the, um, the level of the individual, you know, fascinating you say that these ideas that we've talked about seeing around corners can be applied in our personal and uh, individual professional lives. Um, how would you illustrate that, that, that idea? Well, I think all of us, um, as we journey through life, we reach these turning points where the future is not going to be reflective of the past. You know, we've got a big decision to make, 
or something is thrust upon us, you know, you have a catastrophic loss or you have a joyful event or you have an opportunity to make a change of direction somehow. And I think we've each got to choose how we navigate those shifts in personal circumstance. And, you know, I think a really powerful um, idea here comes from Carol Dweck, uh, who is very famous for this idea, growth mindset. And what her advice is, is, you know, treat setbacks and treat things that initially don't look all that attractive as opportunities to grow and develop into a new um, area. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, Whitney Johnson, who's, um, she, she helps organizations develop these kinds of practices. And she talks about, you know, and this will be near and dear to your heart. She talks about S-curves and how you, how you get to a personal S-curve and how when you're embarking on something new, you know, you're, you're, you're not expert, you're uncertain. It's, anxiety producing, you don't know if you'll be able to do it. And then as you gain capability, you get more comfortable. And then eventually you get to this sweet spot where like, yes, I've gained enough capability. I really know how to do this. And then what ends up happening is you get so good at it. You've done it so many times that you, know, you start to get to the stage where hmm, maybe I'm getting a little stale and you need to take the next S curve, which again, plunges you back into this. Oh, I don't know what I'm doing. And I think those are really representative of inflection points in your own personal life. Um, That's a great story. Actually, it, um, it reminds me, I, I guess, that I hadn't realized that I've experienced this. So I, I, I once was consulting in a new industry and I, early in my career, and I, uh, I confided with the manager that, you know, it was hard to be confident about an industry I'd never worked in before. And his advice essentially was believe in your own experience curve and, um, you know, think backwards from, you know, what would I be feeling now and what will I be feeling next? And, you know, treat that as part of the experience. And I, uh, that was very valuable advice at the time personal inflection points, and this is um, an observation that was made uh, by, by a Harvard professor um, who studied, um, Stevenson, Howard Stevenson, who studies entrepreneurs. And he said, you know, every time you hit one of those turning points in your life, it's actually a gift. It's an opportunity to really look hard at what you're doing. And, you know, for a lot of us, we get busy, we kind of coast along, you know, it's just one day kind of follows on the next. We've got so much to do just to get through those days that we don't really step back and think about it. So I think these inflection points in our own lives give us that opportunity. Now, it may not always be pleasant, but at least it's a chance to say, well, given where I am, you know, where, what choice would I like to make next? So, so fusing the strategic and the personal, perhaps we can end on a, um, I, I, I guess, uh, a mutual friend, Clay Christensen, uh, he wrote the foreword to your book. He was an exceptional human being and a strategist. Uh, what, what did you learn from him as a strategist? How do you remember him as a strategist? Oh, Clay, just where, where do I even start? Um, I think one of the things I most appreciated about Clay was that he really believed in theory. You know, he really believed in the right theory, in the right boundary conditions would give you more capability to anticipate what was likely to happen than if you just kind of blindly went without those kind of guiding principles. Um, so, I mean, one of the first times I ever met him, we talked a little bit about a theory. So the theory, for example, of the learning curve, which he said he'd applied when he was at BCG. And uh, he said, you know, it worked really, really well in industries where there's a steep learning curve effect. So um, aeronautics manufacturing, I think was where the original studies were done. But he said, then you take this idea, which has been so powerfully demonstrated in one context, and you take it to another, for example, textile manufacturing or services, you know, consulting, um, where there are really very shallow 
experience curve effects and it just stops being predictive. It doesn't work so well. So I think the first sort of Uber idea that I would get from Clay was you really need to understand what your boundary conditions are. And then you need to understand when a particular set of ideas work in those boundary conditions and when they don't. I think certainly his idea of disruption came out right around the time that I wrote um, discovery-driven planning. And those two ideas just went together so well that he, fit, he put discovery-driven planning uh, with attribution in, in his book. Um, and I, of course, have used disruption you know, in a lot of my work. Yeah, the, the thing that he said uh, that shaped my career a little bit was the idea that often if something is expressed too theoretically or with too, too much complexity, somebody in a corporation will say that's, that's too academic, that's too theoretical. But he pointed out that Conversely, managers were voracious consumers of, of, of theory. Um, mm-hmm. As long as it works, they, they want a sort of a construct that works. So he encouraged me to be very theoretical, but very simple in the way that I express things. And I, I, that was a, a great lesson, I thought. Yeah, well, I think the other thing to remember about theory and management practice, and I get this all the time, you know, I'm in an academic institution, so we, well, we don't want any theory here. You know, we want... We want tools we can use right away. I hear that all the time. But if you think about really good theories, a lot of times they come with a story to them. You know, they come with something that's relatable that I can I can see myself in. So if I go, I'll go back to the Tay story, right? Um, you know, Microsoft went into that with a theory that human beings were basically benign and that this little robot was going to learn from them and that they would come up with something really useful. And what they learned, much to their regret, was that human beings, at least some of them, are not very pleasant at all. And that you can't just leave these intelligences unprotected out in the wild there. And I think, I think when you think about it in the great scheme of things, that's an incredibly useful thing to have learned and done so with relatively low risk and cost. Because you need, a, you need a better theory. I mean, if you're, if you're going to be on Twitter, you need a better theory of what Twitter's going to be like. And I think, I think Clay really was very um, committed to that. I, I believe in his office uh, at Harvard, he had a sign that said, anomalies welcome. Which means, yes. you know, if you found a way my theory doesn't work, you know, my theory of Twitter doesn't work, or my theory of experience curve doesn't work, then let's think about what, why that is. Is it because we're in a different boundary condition? Is it because there's something missing in the theory and it needs to be updated and, and, and so forth? So I think that was a really um, very honest point of view that he took. And, and he was always open to contrasting ideas. I mean, I've never in all of the years I've known him, heard him ever dismiss an idea or say, I don't, I don't think that works. He would, if he didn't think something was a sound idea, he would probe, you know, he would say, let me understand more about, about what you're seeing here so that I can see how it maps onto my worldview. He was always very gentle that way. Well, thank you so much, Rita, for uh, sharing your ideas with us today. It was uh, very enjoyable and uh, very valuable. Thank you. Thank you for making the time. It's been a pleasure.